Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. This episode of Tricycle Talks is brought to you by Maitripa College, a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. Maitripa offers two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as an optional focus on classical Tibetan language. Founded upon the three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic contemplative learning with traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West as scholar-practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join them to make your practice your life. Visit www.maitripa.org to learn more. In just a few decades, mindfulness has gone from being a fringe pursuit to a popular practice that has been generating controversy as it enters public institutions. Some critics argue that mindfulness meditation can't be separated from its Buddhist roots, and that bringing it into schools violates the separation of church and state. But proponents insist that the practices being taught are entirely secular and can help improve attentiveness and reduce stress. Few have spent more time looking into this issue than this episode's guest, Candy Gunther-Brown, a professor of religious studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. She frequently serves as an expert witness in school mindfulness cases. In her new book, Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools, she takes a thorough look at how mindfulness fits in with legal precedents that were established around school prayer. Here, she makes the case that mindfulness cannot be fully removed from its Buddhist framework and explains why she advocates for an opt-in model for school mindfulness programs. Candy Gunther-Brown, welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a great book and congratulations. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, I'd like to start right off the bat with the basic question. As we all know, mindfulness and yoga have been introduced into public institutional life and perhaps most controversially, into public schools as a tool for social and emotional learning. Why is this a problem? The issue in terms of public schools is that legally there is what people will talk in shorthand about as a separation of church and state. A little bit more technically, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution provides that there will neither be an establishment of religion that is supported by government, and at the same time, that there won't be prohibitions on the free exercise of religion. So the legal question is whether mindfulness is in the category of religion. Additionally, there are also some ethical questions that pertain to the way that public schools serve children from diverse cultural and religious backgrounds and some of the processes by which practices like mindfulness have been adapted from Asian religious and cultural traditions and are often promoted as being especially beneficial for so-called inner-city, low-income African-Americans and Latinos and other peoples of color. We'll get to those issues in a bit. I'd just like to lay the groundwork here a little bit. First of all, just to get a sense of the scope of the problem, how common are compulsory mindfulness programs? I understand they're growing. And to what extent are educators required to take up these practices or learn to teach them? At this point, mandatory programs are rare, but... What's happening is that programs are being introduced as secular social and emotional learning interventions, as aids to focus and attention, as instilling morality and ethics in a non-religious way. And so the assumption, uh, an assumption that I shared actually until I started looking more closely at some specific programs, uh, is these are secular programs. So just as schools can mandate math or 
physical education, there would be no conceptual reason why mindfulness uh, could not be mandatory any more than math or uh, another subject. Uh, There are programs, uh, and I think an increasing number of them, where it can be quite difficult to opt out of the program. And an opt-out has to be often very intentionally requested, uh, especially when programs are presented as a part of the school culture. Uh, There may be practices that are led over loudspeaker announcements or by an individual classroom teacher, uh, sometimes several times a day. Uh, And sometimes there are encouragements to engage in the practice, even when it's not the formal period of mindfulness. Uh, And so students are exposed to mindfulness, even if it's not explicitly coerced. Now, there also are some statements of intended mission by a number of the prominent programs where the goal is mandatory mindfulness. Additionally, I have come across cases where school teachers have lost their jobs because they refused to be a part of a mindfulness program, even if it was for the reason that a history of post-traumatic stress disorder made mindfulness something that induced anxiety and stress rather than relieving those conditions. So the issue here really, though, is uh, you make an argument that these practices may be secular, but they can also be, and they are, both secular and religious. Can you explain that? So I think a lot of people have the assumption that there are two boxes that you put things into. You either put it into the religious box or you put it into the secular box. And I think a very good case can be made that mindfulness has secular contexts and purposes. Uh, A lot of the reason that educators are eager to embrace mindfulness is that it uh, has reported scientific research that indicates that there can be benefits for stress reduction, for focus, and for mental and physical health. And it is presented often without a lot of the terminology that is uh, generally associated with religion. So uh, a lot of mindfulness teachers are not using the word meditation. They're not using the word Buddha or Dharma uh, or even spirituality. Uh, But what gets missed is that religion is not just about words and belief statements, Religion is often embodied in practices, and even when you subtract certain vocabulary or you add other vocabulary, terms like neuroscience or social and emotional learning, that doesn't necessarily mean that religion disappears from the picture. And this is especially true because experiences really are not self-evident. The interpretation always needs to take place. So you may feel a sense of peace or calm, but there's often a kind of guiding of experience. And so uh, teachers who are very careful to avoid religious kinds of vocabulary still may be teaching concepts such as it can be harmful to judge experiences as good or bad, or it's more wholesome to focus on the present as opposed to the past or the future. Uh, They may encourage people that there's a kind of interconnection between people and that if an experience is unpleasant, it will pass. Uh, Well, these encouragements draw upon uh, a set of assumptions and values that have a particular resonance in some religious traditions uh, more than or in different ways than in other traditions. And so even with removing vocabulary, there still can be a communication of particular assumptions about the nature of the self and of the world and about uh, experience itself. Okay, so the argument here is really that these seemingly secular practices nonetheless exert, potentially exert, a spiritual or religious influence on children. Is that right? That's one aspect of the issue here. And the way that the Supreme Court has thought about 
particularly religion in public schools, uh, mostly in the context of prayer and Bible reading cases with a lower appellate court ruling on transcendental meditation. Uh, They are concerned about whether engaging in a practice might make people more likely to change their religious beliefs or affiliations, but they're also concerned about government endorsement of either particular religions or religion as opposed to non-religion. And the, the courts are concerned about a potential for divisiveness and for a favoring of some individuals, groups, or worldviews, sets of assumptions over others. So even if there is not a measurable or significant chance of people changing their religious views, there can be an issue even just with endorsement um, because of a kind of political divisiveness that can come into play, particularly when there are issues or practices where there's just a lot at stake culturally and religiously, and rightly or wrongly, there are individuals or groups who are concerned that engaging in a practice may be an unfavorable statement about their own position, or if they are encouraged to participate, that it might be a violation of conscience for them and clash with their own religious sensibilities. You know, I'd just like to back up for one second because, you know, we use the words secular and religious, and you you um, are very careful uh, to take a look at how the line can be blurred and how we might approach it skillfully. Could you say something about that? So there are a lot of different definitions of terms like religion, spiritual, secular, or even science. And so one of the things that the book does is it walks through the complexity of those definitions and really the difficulty of having any one hard and fast definition. But what we have in the U.S. legally is a court system where the role of the courts when there's a controversy and at policy level, a role of, say, school districts is to mediate competing definitions. And so in the law, the way that this has worked out is sometimes individuals will say, well, to me, this practice is secular, whereas a lot of other people will say, well, to me, that practice is spiritual or it's religious. And so there's this kind of mediating role. And so one of the significant court cases in this regard was a 1979 case over transcendental meditation called Malnak v. Yogi, in which the promoters of transcendental meditation claimed this is science, this is not religion. And the court found, well, that's a subjective interpretation. In fact, it's an interpretation that's motivated by trying to get the practice into public schools and to get funding from the government for that practice. Uh, And so the court found over the self-identified claim that this is not religion, that it was, for legal purposes, religious. Uh, Another follow-up kind of case, uh, also at the appellate court level, United States versus Myers, which was a 1996 ruling, uh, reached in a sense an opposite finding, where uh, an individual was claiming that Church of Marijuana was a religion and therefore there should be protections. uh, And the court found that, well, that's not going to be a religion for legal purposes. And so through those cases, courts have developed particular criteria for identifying when for legal and policy purposes something should be classified as religious for both free exercise and establishment clause purposes. Okay. Well, that's very clear. Another question I have is even if these practices have scientifically established benefits, and of course, um, there's a lot of controversy there, but let's say they do, you say that would nonetheless not establish secularity. So why is that? Well, the assumption, again, is that if something has scientific backing, it's effective, it's safe, therefore it's secular. But there are a number of reasons why that is not necessarily the case. Uh, For one thing, there is also a body of scientific research which indicates that religious practices can have health benefits, that specific regions of the brain can be activated by meditating in a religious context, by prayer, by reading sacred texts. Uh, There also is uh, the question of are there alternatives to 
uh, practices that might be more kind of explicitly uh, secular, so aerobic exercise, math, music, food, they actually activate the same kinds of brain regions. Um, But some of the research that's particularly interesting on the blurred boundary between religion and secularity are findings of people participating in nominally secular programs such as mindfulness-based stress reduction. So there's been research by psychologists led by Jeffrey Greeson and colleagues which have found that most of the people who enroll in MBSR programs, they want things like stress management and mental health. But a lot of them report spiritual experiences. And what these researchers have suggested is a mechanism in which they find a kind of relationship between people having these spiritual experiences and those then mediating improvements in mental health. And so the suggestion here is that the secular benefits actually result from the religious effects and these increases in spiritual experiences. There's also research that suggests that the longer people participate in meditation and the more intensively they participate, they're less likely to be monotheists or religious nuns, those who don't claim an affiliation, and they become more likely to identify as Buddhist or with all religions or to in some way change their affiliations. And so there's evidence that indicates that even participating in intentionally secularized practices, there can be a kind of religious experience that takes place through those very same practices. You know, in the epigraph to your book, you refer to something you've referred to before. I think you may have in our own magazine— uh, you talk of stealth Buddhism, which was mentioned by a teacher uh, and practitioner who, who, who you know, supported uh, meditation in the public sphere. And also, uh, after yoga survived a court challenge in a California school district, uh, there was talk among its proponents of a Vedic victory. So these are pretty overt biases, and uh, there's a covert agenda here is, is the implication, I would think. Um, But not everyone has this agenda. Uh, Is it fair to paint everyone with the same broad brush? I mean, there are obviously people who want to bring these practices into the schools or into the public sphere who know very little about Hinduism or Buddhism. How do you view that? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. So there are prominent, influential promoters of practices who use this language of stealth Buddhism or Vedic victory. These are not my terms. They also use terms like skillful means or a Trojan horse or a script or a disguise. But I think that there are a lot of people who are bringing programs into school or business or military or prison or other kinds of public contexts where there is no kind of agenda of trying to sneak religion into schools. They've probably had personal benefits that they've experienced from these practices. They've read the scientific literature, and their best interpretation of it is that it confirms the effectiveness of these practices. There don't seem like a lot of other options uh, from their perspective, and so why not give it a try? And the issue here is that things can seem self-evidently true. So wake up and experience reality directly and just see what's real. Explore your own first-person experience. Uh, And it can all seem very kind of just intuitive, that this is just obviously how other people will experience things, whereas these are actually interpretations of experience that get framed in particular ways, and there can be a kind of inadvertent conflation of ideals that uh, may be grounded in Buddhist assumptions or other kinds of religious perspectives uh, and that get just blended into what is assumed to be universal. And One of the complexifying issues here is that a lot of the promoters of these programs tend to be relatively wealthy, sometimes very wealthy, uh, European-Americans who make assumptions that their own favored meditative practice must be good for other people. And sometimes what gets reflected is this combination of religious values with just American elite values of things like individualism or freedom of choice or personal fulfillment. And there's this assumption that everyone's going to just converge on this universal ideal 
uh, whereas actually it's a much more culturally specific uh, and even contested kind of ideal. You know, you you hinted at, at what I'm going to ask you in a moment, uh, you, you know, and you're sort of touching on it again, so I'll just jump ahead and ask you. Um, there are two related issues you bring up that I think are very important. One is cultural appropriation and the other is cultural imperialism. Uh, can you say something about how those figure into this issue? Uh, sure. Well, so when I talk about cultural appropriation, analysts will talk about differentials in power and how the more powerful groups can basically pick and choose what they want to take or leave from a tradition. And so uh, Lynette Montero would be one scholar who's given some very insightful critiques al along these lines uh, where promoters will say, well, what we've done is we've gotten rid of the cultural baggage of Asian Buddhism, uh, which begs the question of where the practices actually come from and also can be seen as devaluing that this is now baggage. It's something that you get rid of to get out what the promoter has decided is the essence of the tradition and the pure and the best form. So, uh, and sometimes it's actually the most positive kinds of Orientalist stereotypes of Asians as being wiser, more spiritual, ancient, being better, free from technological corruptions. Those are sometimes the stereotypes that are the easiest to overlook. Uh, and so there can be a kind of um, stereotyping and a blunting of individual distinctions and also blunting of some of the goals of practices that come out of traditions. And so uh, one line of critiques is that uh, this isn't actually right mindfulness. This is wrong mindfulness. And so the goals to which traditions are placed uh, can sometimes be pretty fundamentally at odds with the goals that were articulated in the development of tradition. So that's on the, the angle of the cultural appropriation. Cultural imperialism would then be the uh, assumption that is sometimes made that the people who will most benefit from mindfulness practices are people of color, low income in, uh, quote, inner city sorts of settings who are portrayed as defiant, lacking the capacity to self-regulate, who need to have resources given to them. And here, one of the issues is that there can be a replacement of addressing the systemic structural causes of racism and poverty. And an implicit, and, and I don't think intentional for the most part, but an implicit uh, message that the individuals who are suffering from oppressive and unjust systems are responsible for their own problems, and it's their responsibility to muster interior resources to uh, deal with the racist or inequitable situations uh, in which they're placed. And there can be a kind of effort to mold compliant consumers, what some would refer to as neoliberal subjects, uh, and encourage them to just adapt to the pressures of capitalism's uh, problems rather than rising up to challenge unjust systems in a way that takes more money, more time, more effort. And particularly, there can be this effort to use mindfulness for behavior management. And uh, as Funi Su says, the, the problem here is that it's especially black and brown boys who are targeted for a kind of racial disciplining based on negative stereotypes. And so there are both the positive stereotypes and the negative stereotypes, but both of which end up being uh, what some critics would call a kind of hegemonic exercise of power where the interests and worldviews of a particular social group are being expressed as that of the entire society. And this then leads to a kind of cultural evolution narrative of convergence on this supposedly universal type that's really supporting the interests of uh, fairly elite groups more than the interests of the rest of society. So a question I would have, I mean, putting aside the issue of the Establishment Clause, which is, of course, central, but putting that aside for a moment, is teaching these practices, say mindfulness meditation, in those schools that you referred to, does that work against addressing the uh, larger issue of social justice or can they work together? I think that theoretically, 
and sometimes practically uh, they can work together. And there's actually been quite a lot of interest and effort in recent months and years to have a very kind of socially informed, kind of socially justice aware kind of version of mindfulness. So certainly there are efforts um, by some promoters to bring those things together. Uh, There are questions, I think, that are still to some degree open questions uh, about whether there's an undercutting of the efforts for social change uh, depending on how mindfulness is being taught. Uh, And if individuals are getting the message that really they are the problem, and so there may be these other efforts to take care of some of the structural issues, but still the message is getting across that you should just become more kind of even-keeled, even-tempered, just kind of get calm, reflect. There can be a kind of working against uh, those social goals and ideals. But I think it does matter how the programs are being taught. And some of them are more problematic than others. You're listening to Tricycle's editor and publisher, James Shaheen, in conversation with Candy Gunther-Brown, author of Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools. Interested in hearing additional Buddhist teachings? Join Tricycle's online classroom for our new course, Living and Dying, Navigating the Bardos, with expert guide Andrew Holacek. In this six-part course, you will learn about the Tibetan Buddhist approach to facing the future without anxiety, accepting endings with greater ease, and relating to death as an opportunity. This course starts July 1st, and Tricycle Podcast listeners receive a $25 discount when they enroll with the code TRIPOD25. Enroll now at learn.tricycle.org. And now, let's return to the conversation with James Shaheen and Candy Gunther-Brown. Last weekend, I was talking to a woman who sits on the school board of a medium-sized Midwestern city, and uh, she knows next to nothing about Buddhism or Hinduism, but she said she'd feel deprived of one of the only tools that deals with attentional problems. In other words, uh, I think her school district uh, does have mindfulness programs, and she talks about attentional problems not only among a particular class of people. She says it's a problem across the board. And that made me think back to when I was in elementary school. It was in the 1960s. And um, my first grade nun used to say after recess, you know, sit perfectly still until you can feel the air on your skin. Now, she was no Buddhist. This was the 1960s. (laughs) She was a Catholic nun. And it worked. It It was very effective. Everybody calmed down within a few minutes. And that was an effective tool dealing with first graders, I suppose. But is that sort of thing no longer allowed? I mean, can you tell a kid to take a deep breath and reset? I realize you're not arguing against that, but how do we know what's okay and what isn't at this point? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think one of the issues is that the term mindfulness serves as a kind of sign or marker of larger cultural meanings. And this is actually intentional. When John Kabat-Zinn popularized the term in the end of the 1970s, 1980s, he intentionally said that he wanted the term to do double duty. He wanted it to both uh, sound like a universal capacity and be something that just seemed very commonsensical, something secular, scientific, but he also wanted it to point towards the Dharma and be a kind of umbrella for a, a larger kind of system of values and worldviews. And so in more kinds of literary fields, uh, sometimes uh, scholars will use terms like synecdoche, which refers to a part of something referring to the whole. And I think that that's one of the ways that the term mindfulness can function. Psychological research on advertising reaches a similar kind of conclusion that there can be a kind of brand extension advertising. So even if you have the secular version, that can point towards the larger version. And this is something that proponents of mindfulness have noted, that you simply Google the term and it doesn't take very long to find quite explicitly 
Buddhist resources, teachings, books, retreats, uh, and so forth. So one of the issues is, I think, when you start to use the term as the, the marker for practices that are um, beneficial in some way. But then there, there's also kind of a question of, so where is there a line between these things? And kind of what falls on one side of the religion, what falls on the, the secular side of the line? I don't know that there is a neat line. And so I think that it's important to look uh, very specifically at histories and contexts of particular programs. Um, but Kind of to the to the larger point that's being raised by this school board person that you were speaking to, it really has to do with where the practice and under what circumstances it's being promoted. It's never been my position that mindfulness should be banned. The question is how and by whom and when and where it's being offered. So certainly, Students, teachers are free to engage in mindfulness uh, in all kinds of non-school settings. When it comes to school settings, that's when it becomes trickier. And so the bottom line that I end up reaching is to advocate for what I talk about as an opt-in model of informed consent. So, Candy, why do you think it's important that we follow a model of opt-in rather than opt-out? This is partly informed by how courts have navigated practices like prayer and Bible reading, where they found that school teachers can't encourage even voluntary practices, and it's not legally sufficient to allow an opt-out of a program. Uh, And this makes sense in the sense that when someone has to decide whether to opt out, they have to indicate perhaps publicly in front of their peers or their absence will be noted. This plays on inertia, on herd instincts, respect for authority and peer pressure that others will know when someone is absenting themselves. And so I think you can get better informed consent if you have a kind of opt-in model. Now, this can be frustrating for program promoters because you're going to get more participation if it's an opt-out program or if you just don't even set up the opt-out provisions to start with. But that's actually points to the importance of a system that will better ensure that it really is a voluntary program. And so this then is related to kind of the question of informed consent. And so this is an ethical and a legal theory. It's well known in medical contexts these days that providers of a service have an affirmative obligation to provide enough information for people to decide whether the practice is appropriate for them, given their own values and beliefs, their goals, their priorities. So this would include, for mindfulness, a disclosure of the strengths and the limits of scientific support, risks of challenging or adverse effects, uh, potential for religious or spiritual experiences through participating in the practice, as well as a disclosure of contraindications, uh, such as a history of PTSD or trauma or abuse or depression, suicidality, addiction, uh, or other kinds of psychological disorders, as well as a disclosure of alternatives, things like other kinds of social and emotional learning interventions or cognitive and behavioral therapy. Uh, So it's partly a matter of disclosing those kinds of um, medical and emotional and physical issues, but also disclosing connections with uh, the development of the the term mindfulness and its popularization in uh, American culture and its uh, ties to right mindfulness and the Eightfold Path. Uh, it would uh, involve transparency about what exactly has been changed, uh, what's been removed, what's been modified, what's stayed the same. Uh, it would also involve a kind of disclosure of the personal affiliations of uh, the people promoting the programs. Many of the prominent leaders of mindfulness and education programs do have uh, explicitly Buddhist affiliations. Uh, And you could make this kind of argument for transparency kind of from uh, Buddhist perspectives as well in terms of what right mindfulness is, right intention, right speech. 
But then because there's so much difference in terms of experiences of individuals, I would make one further clarification here. And this is a position that's argued by Willoughby Britton, who's a uh, very um, influential and important scholar who's looked at some of the challenging effects of meditation. But she makes the case, and I think she's exactly right on this, that with mindfulness, it's so individually situated that just having a flyer that you give people with some information on it just really isn't enough. But it's necessary to have one-on-one, face-to-face consultations that are tailored to an individual's backgrounds and circumstances and beliefs and values and goals. You know, uh, yeah. Yeah, one question I had, it, it seems like you'd really get bogged down with informed consent if there needed to be this sort of exchange before each student did it. Now, um, I assume this would just be required of all of the students. Would that be right? Because it, it just seems like a bureaucratic uh, morass. Or what do you think? Well, I don't think that it needs to be a bureaucratic morass. And so, I mean, even the Center for Mindfulness has this a part of their uh, their practice. They mm-hmm. do actually have sit-down, one-on-one consultations with individuals who are a part of the program. It doesn't have to be an hour-long conversation necessarily. Right. There can be literature distribution. There can be group instruction. But there also should be at least short exchanges that uh, that take into account account the individual's experiences because this is right. so contested and can have such significant effects. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and this would be the first objection that I would have if I wanted to promote a program, that this right. sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it does. You know, it, it's interesting what you're saying, and and uh, especially when you talk about not being opposed to these practices altogether, because when you we read an article of yours in the magazine uh, I heard a lot of blowback. People felt that you were simply on a crusade against these practices. But in your book, you write this. Blanket prohibitions would be as contrary to equality, non-discrimination, and voluntarism as mandatory programs. In other words, your objection is religious endorsement and coercion per the Establishment Clause. Um, is that a fair description of how you feel about this? Yeah, that is a fair description. And, I mean, I would say that my objections are are twofold to mandatory or even just opt-out, which end up being coercive kinds of programs. One is the concern about establishment clause and legality. But the second really is more fundamentally an ethical concern Mm -hmm. about individuals feeling coerced or feeling devalued, feeling that kind of divisiveness in the legal sense, but then also these issues of cultural appropriation and imperialism. And so it's not my position that practices should be banned. Uh, My position is that there should be uh, a a free environment that's dominated by transparency and voluntarism and a respect for cultural and religious diversity and for informed consent. That's really what my my goal is. My goal is not to be on a crusade against any kind of practice that might be beneficial to people. Yeah, I think it's important to make that clear because when I did run that that piece, some people did respond that way and it hadn't occurred to me that they would. But this issue can get so heated. Have you been surprised by any of the reactions to your work, both positive and negative? Like what what did you hear that you hadn't expected? I think I've been more surprised by the influx of positive responses than the negative. And I'll, I'll get to the negative in a moment. Um, so the positive is I've gotten quite a volume of unsolicited uh, emails, some unsolicited phone calls, mostly emails from individuals who give me stories of where they were a school teacher and they lost their job or they're a parent and they felt like their religion has been violated or their children have reported negative experiences and sometimes quite disconcerting psychological experiences will people will have like like children will have very visceral negative kinds of responses to just little school programs uh, I've also gotten plenty of pushback and often quite heated, actually. And so my effort is to give just a description of the data and my interpretation of the data in as neutral of a fashion as I know how to. And there will be a quite emotional 
outburst in a room full of scholars. And I think I was surprised initially that there was that much emotion in the room. But now I'm not actually surprised by it because (laughs) I realize there's a lot at stake here. And I'm sympathetic with what's at stake here. If other scholars feel that I'm misinterpreting a tradition that they've studied or that they might feel some kind of personal affiliation to, I mean, the last thing I want to do is disrespect uh, any tradition or set of practices. And I think that part of the issue here is that there's just such a history in this country of especially the prayer and Bible reading kinds of practices of Protestant Christianity being just everywhere in public schools. And so in spite of legal disestablishment, uh, these practices are still there. I mean, I, I teach about this material in my classes, and regularly I'll ask students to raise their hands if they've ever been in a public school classroom and they've been encouraged to pray or read the Bible, and I always get a lot of hands go up. It's not legal to do that, but it still happens. And so I can understand that frustration that it feels like some religious practices are still being favored, and it's especially those Protestant Christian practices that are being favored. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wondered about something. I mean, I know that there are groups that so much wanted to have prayer in the school, and naturally they would be chagrined to discover that other forms of spirituality have found themselves making their way into the schools. But sometimes I wonder when I hear some of, say, uh, the Christian groups who are very upset by this are in part upset because it's this foreign tradition or the fact that it's Asian is especially upsetting to them. They feel that the culture is being undermined when they would very much themselves love to get prayer back in. Uh, Have you met with a lot of that? Yeah, I have come across that. And I think that you're right, that there often is a kind of xenophobia. There's a fear of both other religions and people from other ethnicities and other countries. Often the kinds of critiques that are being made by conservative Christians are ones that don't really show a lot of knowledge of the traditions that are being critiqued. Um, and So I think that that's an accurate assessment. Uh, now, I think there's also a range of positions, mm-hmm. and some of the critics are more uh, informed than others. Um, but, I mean, I would kind of take it um, a, a step back from that for a moment to say, so even if it's the case that there are these other kinds of worries that are mixed in, I would still make the case um, for respecting a sense of individual conscience. Educate, absolutely. Uh, And this is where the Supreme Court draws the line that teaching about religious practices is not only permissible, but it's actually very important to our educational system. This is why I teach religious studies in a public school system. Uh, So teaching about, very important. The, The line that gets crossed is where you're encouraging encouraging the practice of religious traditions. And so I think there still needs to be a respect for um, individuals feeling like their conscience is being violated. Now, maybe they can be educated where they don't conclude that, but maybe not. I don't think that secularity can be fiated. And I think this is actually one of the real risks uh, is that when a practice gets taken as secular by people who are in authority and when worries about that practice seem irrational, there can be a kind of running roughshod over individuals in, in a way that ends up replicating the very kinds of unfair situations that have taken place in the past. It's just different parties. And right. so if people who are invested in traditions from, say, a Buddhist framework The answer wouldn't be, well, let's inject that because the Christians have been injecting prayer. I would say take a higher ground and try and maintain as much as possible a neutral situation where there's a kind of uh, cultivation of respect and dialogue across traditions. Okay. You know, I would like to take us back for a moment to cultural appropriation. I mean, it's an interesting issue and one that's quite controversial. So, You know, take a European-American student of Suzuki Roshi, and now uh, his or her grandchild is practicing Buddhism, and the Buddhism is looking very different because it's developing in a different social and cultural context. But that grandchild, that third-generation Buddhist, uh, the grandchild of a European-American who studied with an Asian teacher, 
has made it his own or her own. And at what point does that tip into cultural appropriation? And the reason I ask is that sometimes it's been considered cultural appropriation. And yet, you know, Buddhism does have, after all, an evangelical impulse. And I'll probably get into a lot of trouble for saying that. But if you say the most precious gift you can give is the gift of Dharma, it rationalizes a lot of, you know, evangelicalism, I guess you would say, or it makes disseminating the Dharma an, an imperative. Let's put it that way. Sure. So it's odd to discuss cultural appropriation when, like, Islam spread West, Buddhism spread East. At what point does it become cultural appropriation? Sure. I mean, that's another great question. And one of the issues here is that there is no such thing as a pure tradition that keeps constant over time or across place. And there's been really rich historical work that's been done by other scholars on the process of the historical transmission of Buddhism and the way that it's changed uh, to adapt to different cultures and different contexts. And there are certainly quite a number of Buddhists who would say that that's exactly how it should be, that this is uh, how to be effective, that, and that would be skillful means uh, in terms of adapting a tradition in order to uh, fit the audience. Uh, so one of the places where we get into the territory of cultural appropriation uh, does, I think, have to do with when it's wealthy European Americans who are picking and choosing. Wait, just, it, be, just be clear. Yeah. Uh, picking and choosing what? Well, which elements of the tradition? And this is where John Kabat-Zinn has been criticized fairly extensively that he decides which elements of a practice constitute the essence okay, so of Buddhism. Okay, so I just want to be clear. So in other words, the person is not choosing which elements are meaningful for him or herself. The person is deciding what is useful or what the fundamental elements are for others. Yeah, that, that is the, the important distinction that I would make here. I mean, individuals are always deciding which elements are going to be useful for themselves. I think that's just kind of how people work in the messiness of lived experience. But it's particularly when there are conclusions drawn, and I mean, it's not only Kabat-Zinn, but people like Sam Harris, for instance, to use terms, and this term is used by both Kabat-Zinn and by Harris, that it's the cultural baggage of Asian Buddhism that should be left behind so that this can be Americanized, made modern. Well, well, the, so the assumption here is that we have no baggage of our own. I mean, exactly. that's, that's the assumption, right? Yeah, and and that the this merger then with these often quite elite American ideals are going to make this original tradition, if you could ever isolate that thing, purer and better and more kind of relevant to to a culture. So I don't think that it's change in and of itself, whether that's generational or historical, cross cultural, but it's when there are these. Uh, differentials in power dynamics, and when there there is this kind of additional aspect of what Jane Iwamura calls virtual Orientalism, this kind of stereotyping uh, and this kind of hegemonic exercise of power where it becomes an issue. It's yeah. not the change in and of itself. Yeah, I think what you're referring to is somebody who's saying, here's the essence of Dharma, it's good for you, and we're going to teach it to you. And the student really has no role uh, except to sit passively and receive that teaching. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I mean, this is where one of the examples that I give in the book is the 2012 film Room to Breathe, which follows Mindful School's co-founder Megan Cohen as she's teaching African-American and Latino children in San Francisco and uses the language of defiance of the students. And there's a scene in the film where she asks the students, how many of you really don't want to be here? And she asked that because there's so much, quote, defiance in the room. And several students raise their hand, and they're temporarily ushered out of the room, and then they're forced to come back into the room oh uh, and do the practice once the rest of the room is in line. And so even though they, they took the stand of being willing to identify in front of their peers by raising their hands publicly, they said, we really don't want to do this practice. They tried to opt out, and they weren't actually allowed to opt out. 
Wow. Uh, and, and I don't question the motives of mindful schools or of Conan specifically, right? I mean, she she's trying to go into a place where there's a lot of need. She's persevering even when she meets resistance. She's feeling frustrated. But she's also assuming that she knows what they need uh, and more than than they do even though they've clearly expressed what, what they want and what they need. And, and part of the issue here is that if you look statistically, African Americans and Latinos on a statistical level tend to be more religiously active and more predominantly Christian than uh, tends to be the case for those who are promoting programs in school contexts. And so you get this clash then of goals and values. And so many of the students in that classroom, they may, may already have had resources that they thought were as effective as possible, right. given the structural injustice of their situation. Candy, this has been a great conversation, but we're just about out of time. Is there anything you'd like to say before we close? Well, I think the main thing that I want to uh, emphasize uh, is that the the problem here is not mindfulness. Uh, I, I don't see mindfulness as a problem. My concern is to promote the values of transparency and volunteerism uh, and just a real respect for the range of religious and cultural traditions uh, of this country and of the public school system. And as I've looked at a lot of school programs for a number of years now, uh, it seems to me that the the best way to do that is to work more intentionally towards this model of opt-in informed consent rather than simply assuming that mindfulness is always secular or always beneficial. Uh, I think we need to keep the conversation open. And so that's where I hope uh, I'm encouraging uh, more kind of questioning of assumptions and more uh, discussion of what I think are just very important uh, issues for all parties concerned. Candy Gunther-Brown, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today, and we're all looking forward to the book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Candy Gunther-Brown discuss her new book, Debating Yoga and Mindfulness in Public Schools, on Tricycle Talks. To hear more episodes, visit us at tricycle.org slash podcast. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruist at Argo Studios in New York City. This episode is sponsored by Maitripa College. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.